Welcome to Premier Health Now On Air. Today we're talking about Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. You may know it as ADHD or even ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder. If you think you're hearing more about it, that could be because the number of children diagnosed with the condition rose 43% from 2003 to 2016, according to the Centers for Disease Control. What's behind the numbers? And what are we doing about it? Stay tuned and learn with us. I'm your moderator, Leslie Lane. With me today is psychiatrist Dr. Mark Kasdorf with Upper Valley Outpatient Behavioral Health. He specializes in child and adolescent psychiatry, and childhood is where ADHD first shows itself. Dr. Kasdorf, thank you for taking time to be with us today. Well, thanks for having me, Leslie. I'm glad to be here. You've said that you chose to specialize in kids and teens because of the impact you can have on the trajectory of their lives. Over your years in treating ADHD, how have you seen your ability grow to make that difference? Well, thank you for asking. It's actually very dramatic, the changes you can get in a child that's being correctly diagnosed and treated. Kids who are not treated adequately that have ADHD, there's a much higher risk of dropping out, becoming addicted, having car wrecks, and other very bad things. Kids that are treated have no higher risks for those things than the kids who do not have ADHD. So the risks are high for not treating So putting somebody on medication, getting them correctly treated, it changes dramatically the trajectory of their lives. When you tell parents that their child has ADHD, how do you describe it? Do you have some analogy that helps them understand what's going on? To be honest with you, by the time a parent comes to see me, they've tried just about everything else. It is not an easy decision to bring your child to see a child adolescent psychiatrist and to contemplate medications because there's, there's so much fear out there. So they do know that this is probably where we're headed by the time they come see me. So they typically will have you know, a lifelong history of knowing that the child is having problems. So they do have that base of knowledge by the time they come in. There are different types. How do you recognize that this might be ADHD? Well, to make the diagnosis, you have to look at the child essentially from the time they're born. The classic child with ADHD is more active as a neonate. Uh, They tend to crawl a less period of time. They tend to go from wiggling to up and running. Oftentimes, these kids bolt out in traffic. The moms have to hold on to them. You've seen some kids that have these harnesses on them. That's for their safety. So they tell you right up front, the child does by their behavior, that there's a serious problem. Now, people, sometimes they get you know, confused about ADD versus ADHD. It's all the same thing. And basically, every 10 years or so, the powers to be change the definitions just a little bit. But basically, it's ADHD, and then you'll have the inattentive type. Then you'll have the hyperactive, impulsive type. And then you have the kind that, well, basically they have all of it. It's the same illness. How do you diagnose? Well, that's a good question. And the parent will come in and they'll provide that history where the symptoms of impulsivity, hyperactivity, and inattentiveness have been there from the beginning. It's not something that just started last month. 
It's a, a lifelong illness, or at least up to that point in their lives. And you'll see that they have these problems at home, or at definitely at school, or in church, or in stores. In other words, it's, a, it's not just one place where they're having troubles, but it's their whole environment. So you look at that, and you look at the child, too. ADHD kids that are untreated, they'll show you right there in your office. They're on it and usually uh, bouncing around your office and doing things. Uh, I have a kid-proof office, and a lot of beanbag chairs and stuff. We're prepared for all that. And then oftentimes I'll get a report from the teachers where I've asked them to fill out a questionnaire and, and give me their assessment. So you've got the parents' history You've got the teacher's history, and then you have the child in front of you. And you look at those factors, then that gives you a pretty good idea of what the diagnosis is. Why do you think we're seeing rising rates of ADHD diagnosis? Well, I think public awareness that this is something that is treatable is probably the biggest factor. They've not identified any causative agent per se. Uh, There's a couple exceptions. Uh, related to mom's drug use. But other than that, there's not any other environmental causes that they've identified. ADHD typically is hereditary. And so oftentimes a child will come in and you'll, you'll see there's a parent or an uncle or a grandparent who struggled through school or they dropped out of school or they could not keep a job because they're so impulsive. I don't believe the numbers are showing that the illness is expanding in occurrence but rather an awareness that this is something we can do something about. So you mentioned uh, heredity and drug use as possible risk factors. Are there others? Well, those are the two big ones. As far as moms, heavy smoking is a definite risk factor, high risk factor for a child developing ADHD. I can't repeat that enough. It's something that we need to look at. You know, and I know smoking does occur because it's a terrible addiction in and of itself. No mom smokes who likes to do that. So it's sort of a double-edged issue there. But certainly nicotine exposure, you know, levels of alcohol exposure can do that. Those are the ones that have been identified, and plus the genetics. Recently, a breakthrough treatment made the news. So let's get on to treatment. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the first medical device for treating ADHD. It's a nerve stimulation system. What can you tell us about that? Cranial stimulation, nerve stimulation is the latest thing. And they've been doing something along those lines for other illnesses for some time. But this one's specific for just ADD in kids. I've read the study and I'm sort of a, I'm a cautious physician. I don't leap out there at the latest simply because I've seen too many things not pan out. Now, if this holds out to be a good thing, in other words, there are no long-term bad effects from this, then it could be a dramatic breakthrough. But we don't have that information yet. The study that the FDA used, they subjected kids to this stimulation for a month and gave them one week of nothing, you know, no treatment, and then they assessed them. And that's all we've got. It doesn't say, well, could this affect their cognitive ability six months down the road? They don't have that information yet. So I guess what I'm saying to you is it looks promising, but I'm not ready to use it yet. So then there are many treatment options available to you. 
what kinds of things do you use, and are there any recent advances in any of them that you're now using? What I use is old and new. 60 years ago, they started using methylphenidate and amphetamine. These are the only two chemicals that they call stimulants, the stimulant medications. They've been using them for that long. This is not experimental. So those are the, the technical terms. What might we know them? Ritalin, mm-hmm. Adderall. There's that whole group there, Focalin. And every once in a while, there'll be another company that will come out with a new formulation of one of those two chemicals. They alter it by how long it lasts or ease of use. You know, they have chewables, they have liquids, they have patches. Uh, and then, of course, the traditional pills. And you can find something to fit a kid that will work and they can tolerate. And the big thing is, well, insurance pay for it, of course. But that treatment has been out there and, and established. and We've been doing that for many years. They do have some non-stimulant medications. There's just not very many, but there's been a few. And they failed to provide robust results, except in some very specific cases. But uh, the stimulants are the medicines that have been used the most and for the longest. And I must add, too, they have been found to show no bad long-term side effects from the stimulants. They've been used for 60 years now. We've got that history. And we would know if it was causing problems. They, they do not. Now, I know I'm kind of going off on this, but a common thing I hear from parents is they are afraid that their child is going to look like so-and-so's kid who was looked like a zombie. Well, if properly done, none of that occurs. Uh, parents should expect their child to be their child, should be able to function appropriately. And that I tell parents that my goal is to get their child into a situation where next year's teacher is surprised to find out there was ever a problem at all. So that's very achievable, and that's a, a doable goal, I think, with the medicines we have out there now. Someday we may develop something that doesn't involve medicine or you know, anything like that. It's not there yet. When you say you use old and new, what were you thinking about the new? Well, the new are the, the new formulations. When I was in training many years ago, uh, we just had two medicines, and they were very short-acting, and a child would have to take it three to four times a day. Well, that's ridiculous. That absolutely sets everybody up for failure. And it did. But now we've got some nice, really long-acting forms that are relatively smooth. Uh, we're looking at maybe one to two times a day for full coverage. So those are always nice. And they have them now to where it can be accommodating to any child, particularly those that have trouble swallowing pills. Uh, they have capsules you can pour sprinkles. You have liquids. And then, of course, patch. Is this a lifetime diagnosis with lifetime treatment? That's an excellent question. The latest studies show that about 60% of people who needed medication as children will need them as adults. 40% won't. We don't know how to predict which category. There are adults that benefit from the use of stimulants in professional lives. I have treated many adults of all walks of life. It can mean the difference between keeping a job or losing jobs or being able to perform adequately at work or not. And the thing to look at from a child as well as an adult is, are they underachieving? 
I mean, you take some people, uh, particularly I'll see them all the time, children that are very, very bright. And so they don't need to attend for very long. Uh, but as time goes on and the demands for being organized and having other things in place besides just high IQ, you'll see a gradually increasing impairment. So they end up underachieving in life. It's a big deal for a lot of people. So if an adult needs treated, then obviously they, they should be treated. It's, it is not a harmful thing to do, if done correctly. Are there barriers to getting the kind of treatment that you talk about? Yes, ma'am, there are. And I'd say the first barrier is public perception. I mentioned to you a minute ago that it is very difficult for a parent to decide, today I'm going to take my child to see a psychiatrist and likely get placed on medication. There's an awful lot of hurdles that have to occur there. And there's always somebody in the family who's not in the room, who's out there coaching them. That's absolutely fine, and we're used to that. So the public perception is probably the first big hurdle. But once we're through that, I'd say the second hurdle is the private insurance industry. They uh, have what they call formularies, which are essentially lists of medications that they will approve paying for. And so a parent has a choice between a $20 copay or a $250 bill, which is prohibitive. And so the choice is pretty simple. You go where what they will pay for, and they essentially dictate what we use. And unfortunately, some of the insurance companies uh, will not let us use the best for the child, the state-of-the-art or what the latest is. They won't let us without charging the parent uh, extreme amounts of money and causing hardship. Are there ways around that? Well, it depends. Uh, Sometimes you can negotiate with them, and that takes us to do that. But oftentimes, the price remains high. We have a staff here who do nothing but, every day, all day long, uh, negotiate and do battle with insurance companies. Uh, So that's going on behind the scenes at every doctor's office. And certainly we're no different. Uh, Psychiatric medicines seem to be singled out, I think, uh, by the insurance industry for limitations and such. So it's something that we do on a daily basis. I saw a statistic that by 2017, tens of thousands of research studies and papers had been done on ADHD. Are you watching any research that seems particularly promising? I look what the source is. Uh, And you're right, there have been quite the amount of uh, studies. Just as an aside, uh, Leslie, ADHD is the most studied illness of any pediatric illness. The psychostimulants, the ones we talked about before, those are the most studied, researched medications that we give any child just because of people being worried about it. And so there's always a grant available for that sort of thing. But I look first, where does the study come from? Is it from a pharmaceutical company or is it from the National Institute of Mental Health or something of that caliber? The second thing I look for is, is this a multi-site research study? Those are the ones that give you the most confidence. If it's research conducted by a governmental agency, somebody that doesn't have direct financial gain, if it's done at multiple sites and they've used valid criteria for setting it up, those are the things I take seriously for uh, making decisions. And then there's the American Psychiatric Association, 
people that dictate how we go about this business of treating ADHD, um, they will put forth recommendations based on the current data out there. So is there anything out there that's exciting at the moment? There are exciting things going on. They do look at different medication groups based on brain chemistry, and they're, they're always testing theories out there. I hesitate to say one particular one uh, because there's several looking at different things. And they've eliminated certain treatment modalities, but you know they, they keep searching. So why should someone who gets a diagnosis of ADHD today mm-hmm. be optimistic? Well, today we have quite the variety of treatments, medications, and there are some counseling steps that, particularly for the older people, there's some behavioral things a person can be taught to help make it easier for them to fall in place, to keep their lives organized. For example, you know, when you're talking to a child, you know, having the program set up to where a routine is put together and stuck to for making sure their homework gets home, it's done and sent back to the school. That's actually a pretty complex circuit there. And if the parent can work with the teacher uh, in putting together such a program, the child benefits greatly. And of course, you know, getting adequate sleep is critical. The child eating nutritiously is critical. Avoiding things that deliberately can knock somebody's concentration off. Uh, caffeinated beverages is a very popular thing that can disrupt a child. Uh, there are behavioral things a person can be trained to do. And looking at the medications, like I said, there are the nice long-acting ones out there that uh, there's low addiction potential as far as when you consider that whole group of medicines. And they have minimal side effects. They're geared specifically to try to reduce any type of side effect issues. So it's actually an exciting time. The disease is much more accepted now. It's being treatable and Yes, it occurs in children and adults, so there's a lot less stigma out there than there used to be. So it's all good news as long as you take the step to get the help. That's it exactly, Leslie. Getting properly diagnosed and understanding what you're being treated for and working closely with your provider would be the biggest thing. And if a person does that and makes some modifications in their lifestyle, then There's nothing getting in the way of them having a full life. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder may be more common than we would like, but researchers and clinicians are working hard on the front lines to help kids and adults live well with the diagnosis. We want to thank Dr. Kasdorf for helping to lead the charge and for sharing what you know. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Kasdorf with Upper Valley Outpatient Behavioral Health. If you want to know more, visit premierhealth.com slash health now. We'll be back. We hope you will. I'm Leslie Lane, and thanks for joining us. Watch for our next edition of Premier Health Now on air. Thank you.